This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? On this week's episode, we are joined with a guest, our friend and colleague, Rod O'Connor. Rod, welcome to Aider and a Better. Hey, thank you for having me. The blue ape. Rod is the blue ape. Rod is a mentor to Sajid and I. He uh, is a recently, I think it's still recently, retired public defender. We are so glad to have him. In this week's episode, we talked to Rod about his perspectives on things that he misses about being a public defender now that he's in retirement, things that he doesn't miss, uh, his reflections on his career and his time. In our second segment, we're going to talk about the frequently asked cocktail party questions that we get about public defense. And we're going to touch on the case that's being argued at the Supreme Court today, McCoy versus Louisiana, where an attorney in a death penalty case and his client got into a major dispute about whether to concede that the client was guilty in order to get a good sentence. Sajid, why don't you kick us off? So Rod, both of us worked with you. Avi started in the office in 2009. I started the office 2008, and you were already a stalwart at the office. So tell us, uh, you were a PD in our county for how long? Almost 16 years. And then you retired in 2016, is that right? I retired at the end of 2016, uh, December of uh, 2016. Was public defense your only job as an attorney? It was the only job I've ever had as an attorney. And once I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, it was uh, pretty much the only job that really seemed to draw me. I got into the uh, to the field later in life. Um, I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. Once I got to college, I realized that I was drawn toward uh, some form of public service with the government. And without realizing it at the time, I was kind of already kind of being pushed in this direction. By the time I got to law school, I realized that uh, I was never going to be a, um, you know, a deep carpet, uh, blue chip law firm type of litigator. Most of the people uh, in my class who were headed in that direction kind of annoyed me. And it, it, there was nothing about that practice that attracted me. I wanted to be in public service. But trying to figure out exactly where it was that I was going to go took a little bit. And it wasn't until I was about halfway through my second year that I realized that I wanted to be a public defender. Initially, I didn't think that I was cut out for it, actually. I thought that I was just not good enough. Not is that not in front of juries? Right. It was it was because there was something about the practice of criminal law itself that I thought I just wasn't good enough for. Um, you know, holding somebody's freedom and their life in your hands as you argue in front of a jury. It's a high calling. Those are uh, heavy stakes, and that's a heavy burden uh, to bear. In my heart, I just really didn't feel like I was good enough to do that. What changed? Well, I took a trial advocacy class. I realized that I liked it. I realized that I kind of had a talent for it. I started to extern in uh, public defender's offices. I interned in the Alameda County Public Defender's Office after my second year. Uh, I externed in... Shout-outs to Alameda. Shout-outs to Alameda. I I externed in the San Francisco Juvenile Public Defender's Office as a certified law student and argued my first cases there. And uh, and after that, uh, I post-barred in Contra Costa. Oh, so you covered the whole bay. I did. I did. And uh, I realized it's it's kind of... uh, one of those things where you don't know where you're going until you get there and then you look back on the road that you've taken and you realize that this is where that you this is where you were going all along yeah that's yeah. pretty awesome so then and so you covered all corners of the bay area as a law student right and then you end up in san jose I did, and even that was kind of a, a crapshoot. I, uh, of course, applied to all the public defender's offices in the area. None of them hired me. I had a card in my desk from uh, a public defender in, in Santa Clara named Grant Armstrong, who was a Cal alum. And, Bears. Uh, yeah, go Bears. <laughs> and I was in law school Shout out there. to the Bears. And he, uh, uh, 
so he just uh, I did an on-campus interview with him and he uh, basically said yeah thanks for your interest but we really can't do anything for you until you pass the bar if you're still interested give me a call so That's the same thing that happened to me yeah so I got to yeah and so uh, I called him and he set up an interview and I, uh, I didn't know how I did and uh, in the process of waiting for his for the callback from Santa Clara County, I actually interviewed in LA and flew down there and actually got the job. That's uh, like enemy territory for you, right? You're wearing a Giants jersey right now. I did not want to practice in Dodger Town. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it looked like they were going to be the only uh, public defender's office that would give me an opportunity. And um, I flew down there twice, uh, passed the boards, and uh, got the call back from Mike Judge. And then he gave me an offer. And uh, I walked out of the building thinking, okay, I'm going to have to tell my wife we're going to have to relocate down here she at the time was a nurse at UCSF and so I didn't know how that was going to work out and as I'm leaving the building kind of preparing myself for the call she called me and let me know that Santa Clara had called back and offered me a job wow that's so, awesome yeah. it all the stars aligned it they, they certainly did so you end up in Santa Clara County he said for 16 years right. um, I'm assuming you probably did every type of case or and handled every type of practice within a public defender's office that we could offer is that right just about everything uh, with the exception of probate but i've done every other type of case yes. um any specific assignment that you held dear to your heart or that prompts really fond memories um, or terrible memories for that matter <laughs> yeah. i did a couple of stints in juvenile court and um i uh, i didn't really care for that practice simply because I thought that the whole mission of juvenile law and juvenile justice had been perverted and turned on its head. Uh, it's a system that on its face and on paper is designed to afford uh, your clients all of the due process protections while removing the stigma of criminal prosecution. That's his mission. And when you get there, you find it's exactly the opposite. Hmm. You have almost none of the due process protections that an adult uh, in criminal court has. Like and a jury trial in particular. Like a jury trial and, and oftentimes even the protections of Miranda. Um, you're in court against basically two prosecutors. You have a DA and you have probation. And uh, the stigma certainly uh, attaches and doesn't go away. Uh, uh, you never really shake uh, the stigma of a juvenile adjudication, as they called, and uh, they can they can live with you and, and last with you for your for the rest of your life. So um, I, I wasn't really fond of that experience. Yeah, um, I did juvie for two and a half years, mm -hmm. and it was it was a fulfilling experience for me. I liked it because I liked being on the ground with with the kids and and having an opportunity to to intervene at a really critical stage of their lives. Right. But it was so heavy yeah, for yeah. me. It was emotionally exhausting in a way that adult practice wasn't, just because you're dealing with kids or who, who are so often helpless and powerless right. to change their own circumstances. And you're really up close and personal with some real trauma that yeah. they are experiencing day to day. And you're getting to know these kids. And I just would walk out of there just feeling so heavy. And, um, and then it was a breath of fresh air to go back to adult felony trials where I was dealing with child molest cases and homicides and right. attempted murder. Somehow that, that felt less heavy um, it's, it's kind of perverse to think about it that way. It just was a kind of a load off my shoulders. I'd go back to juvie, but I, I need some, need some time to kind of recover from that experience. Yeah, mm -hmm. indeed. And even, uh, even locally, I understand the, that it's improved significantly from, uh, the, you know, the, the days when I first practiced. So juvie was the low point, right? What were the, what, what's the kind of high points of your career? What were the, what are the moments that you think of fondly? Oddly enough, some of my fondest memories are when uh, I would go to the jail 
for the first time to meet a client that had just been assigned, and uh, I would sit down with him. It was almost always a him. I right. Mean, you know, as you know, ninety percent of our clients uh, or more are male, and I would sit down with him, and uh, he would uh, say, he, I would tell him my name, and he'd say, Oh yeah, yeah, I heard of you. <laughs> the guys here, they, they talk about you. They say that you're one of the they, good did ones. Did they know your Twitter handle? The no, <laughs> they weren't on social media, and this is before I got on I social know. media. But, but it's a, it was really kind of an affirming feeling right. when you know that um, the way you practice and the way that you fight for your clients um, has kind of spread throughout the people whose population you're serving. Yeah. So that was good. The helping clients is something that brought me to practice, but you got to be my supervisor mm-hmm. in Palo Alto for just a couple months together. And the singular focus on the client, their well-being, because I was brand new. Right. Right. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go fight. I'm going to go try. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But just really emphasizing our our clients or the people at the heart of what we're doing was such a great lesson that I learned from you. So it makes sense that that stood out to you. And you stole my thunder there because I was going to say the other really fond memory I have, ironically enough, was my time up in Palo Alto supervising you and another <laughs> colleague in our office. Um, Who and was that? Uh, Carly Ware. Oh, uh, Carly. Yes. Oh, you guys were together? You, you, Avi, you and Carly? So I would follow her. Wherever she would go, I'd come after. Oh, right. that's awesome. So it was first Carly and then it was Avi. Um, and it was ironic because I was sent up there uh, as kind of a, a rest and, and rehab assignment. Um, part, of the, part of the reason was I had suffered a heart attack at 49, mm. which was completely job related. And our boss at the time, Mary Greenwood, uh, decided that I needed to go up to Palo Alto to kind of chill out a little bit and just, you know, basically just uh, supervise some misdemeanor attorneys, go to an outlying court, uh, drive a little, you know, less distance to home. And uh, and um, I didn't really want to go. And pretty much the whole time I was there, I was kind of waiting for the opportunity that I get the all clear and come back and, and try cases. But while I was there, I really enjoyed supervising Avi and, and, and Carly because um, I recognized both of them as really promising attorneys and I knew that they would do well. Any any particular memories of Avi as a young public defender? <laughs> I can't think of any right now. I so I, have I, one. I mean, no, I thought when I started, you were doing research, mm-hmm. and I was kind of a pain in your ass. Like mm-hmm. I'd always show up, and I'd have some like random question that I didn't. You know, it was you always let me in and talk to me about it. But we didn't. You know, we weren't in the trenches fighting. It was more like academic me mm-hmm. trying out some theory that doesn't really make sense because I don't know anything at the time. And then you came up to Palo Alto and we're moving a calendar together, right? So that was just mm. a different, it was a different experience, right? Working actually side by side, helping clients, like, right. you know, 30 people a morning. Right. Uh, it's just when you're working that way, you get to actually see and learn from somebody as they actually do it. I, I remember some cases where I leaned on you in order to help me talk to the client about what their objectives are and how to get to those objectives, which is something I think we'll talk about in a little bit yeah. uh, when a client's try and help them understand a really complex system where the risk is all theirs. That's something that stands out to me from our time up there. So Rod, you know, one of the things we talked about in one of our previous episodes was uh, sustaining in this work. Um, Mm. Avi and I talked about self-care, about the enormous burdens and stress that we take on in this work, and then trying to maintain some longevity in the job. So you just mentioned your heart attack. You said it was directly related to the work. Can you describe why you believe it was related to the work and then what you did after the fact to kind of maintain your body, yourself, your mind in order to to have a healthy career moving forward? Yeah, sure. Um, 
so uh, obviously there whenever you have an incident like that there there are other factors that always come into play sure. but uh it was related to the work because of the stress that I had kind of built up yeah. and as you mentioned I had neglected the self-care that we all really need to practice in order to sustain ourselves um I wasn't exercising nearly mm-hmm. as much as I needed to um I wasn't eating as healthily as I needed to uh, there were times perhaps when um, I would unwind a little bit too much on the weekends just to kind of decompress a bit. And um, all of that kind of caught up with me. The thing was, the, the funny thing was that there were signs that were pointing to it that I kind of chose to ignore. Um, I had just come back from a really stressful, serious felony trial and was sitting down with uh, one of our colleagues, Gilda Valeros, in her office. And the temperature was like, 52 degrees and I was sweating profusely Hmm. and she took one look at me and she kind of marched me upstairs and she marched me into the office of uh, Mary our boss and said you need to get this guy to to do something about you know what's going on with him I didn't uh, I didn't heed her advice and uh, as a result uh, I just put some black tape over that check engine light yeah and just kept kept trucking just kept driving on right yeah so yeah it's it's you mentioned food and you mentioned exercise I mean one of the ways that I cope with this job, I mean, we have some junk food on the table right now. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, with Coke and with ch- chips and fast food. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I haven't graduated to the other one yet. Hopefully, no. hopefully not. But, um, yeah, w- w- because sometimes you just need something to take the take take the edge off after a long day, and you you know you go into you take some, get some comfort food for mm. those that drink. Get, you get a beer or two or three. Uh, and then sometimes, like you said, on the weekends, you just want to check out and sit down and not do anything. And that's the that's the instinct. Yes. Um, but that's not obviously the way that we maintain our bodies, maintain our minds, and maintain the, the sustainability for this career. So what did you do? Af- so you have this heart attack right. at age 49. Right. You're in the middle of your p- public defense career. What do you do? What 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 does the light click for you? Yeah, I made some changes. Um, I started uh, exercising a lot more frequently. Um, it involved oftentimes getting up early in the morning to go to the gym before I come into the office. Uh, so that that uh, also required me to adjust my sleeping habits. I started eating a little more healthily. You know, a lot more skinless chicken, a lot less raw meat, uh, a little more red wine. You know, not so much Irish whiskey. Um, you know, and uh, and also just uh, you know, kind of taking some time out uh, at least once a day or so, just to kind of pause and reflect, practice your breathing, just uh, being contemplative, and uh, that I think uh, helped a lot. Yeah, uh, just ha- helped me to refocus a little bit. Um, Rod, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is having had a career as a public defender. And now spending time away from it, things you miss, things you don't miss. You talked about juvenile court, but can you give us, uh, when I ask you, what do you miss about public defense? Can you give us like a top five or a top three that stand out to you? Well, the first thing that I miss was what I knew I would miss all along. And that's the the people that I work with. I mean, the, the, the office itself is just such a great collection of diverse, passionate, brilliant, dedicated advocates. Um, I loved each and every one of them, and I loved being uh, counted among their ranks. And I considered it, and always will consider it, to be probably the greatest honor that I ever had. 
sharing our, your joys and your sorrows and your triumphs, you know, and your defeats um, and your lives. I mean, we, you know, I've came to, to work with people who are still very young and, and you, you see them start families of their own and you see their kids come, you know, come into the world and start to grow up and they're dealing with all of those issues and, you know, the whole issue with raising a family. And at the same time, they're devoting all of this energy to their clients and, uh, and, and helping people who are in the greatest need that they've they probably ever will be in. Um, uh, I just can't imagine something that's uh, just more thrilling than being a part of that effort and being a part of that team. I really miss that a lot. It's interesting you mentioned that because you, you hear about pro athletes, people like Brett Favre, Tom Brady. Um, I was just listening to Jose Canseco on the radio this morning on KMBR, and that's, they were asking him about what he misses. He says he misses yeah. the locker room. And in, in a lot of ways, that's what being a public defender is like, you know, being a part of the team. Like right. You mentioned like coming back from a day in court or in trial and parking yourself on someone's in their office or on their sofa and just kind of unloading and unwinding, trading war stories about what just happened in court. And there is a significant team element of it that I can't imagine being without. Um, that, I assume that was going to be your first answer and I was because right. that would be my first answer is if you plucked me out of the office right now, that's what I would miss most. Right. I'm thinking about the days when you go watch a colleague, you know, I go watch Avi do a closing argument or mm. he comes and watches me or, you know, you would load the courtroom to see your fellow public defenders, you know, put on a motion or something like that. Yes. There's, there's nothing like it and being able to turn back and see your fellow freedom fighters, you know, all in the same ranks, all behind your client. Yeah, it's no. like taking a verdict with people, right? Yes. Where there's no craft-based, you know, like when I go oh, watch yeah. Sajid Close or when I watch mm -hmm. Rod do a cross-examination, I'm doing that to support them, but also to pick up some tools for my own toolkit. But then taking yeah. a verdict with somebody, you know, you're just there to be there for the person, yeah. right? right? You're not going to learn anything. You know, there's no other purpose it's just pure support that's so well, true yeah you know like every every verdict that i've had with someone else you know i'm walking to court to take the verdict and i see someone either walking back to the office or mm. walking towards court you know they either volunteer to come with me or i grab them to come with i will forever remember those people and in those moments i know who exactly was there with me at these very significant moments of our careers and like it's there's nothing that can replace it right and even uh while you're in trial or while you're preparing a case or while you're trying to wrestle with an issue there was there was never a time where i couldn't find somebody i could go talk to and 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 just and get some help with and just sit down and, and kind of get some ideas if i was stuck on a legal issue or a factual issue i always was able to find somebody who could help me kind of work through it you know and push through it and get to the next step um i would have been terrified fight to have been to have uh, done this on my own yeah um you know without the the support of the people uh, in our office um, i just don't think it, it would have been possible so yeah and the other thing too like you mentioned is that we we get hired in batches generally i don't know if you got hired the same way with other kind of people in your cohort right and then you kind of grow up with with them you know both as public defenders but all you mentioned as 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 people um because people generally in our practice they're in there you, you start a little later, but they're in their tw late 20s, early 30s. They're getting married. They're having kids. And then, you you know, just you start growing up and you just like that's how Avi and I have right. connected over the years is we're, we're connected not only in the office, but then we that relays outside of the office and we're seeing each other's families and things right. like that. It's it becomes my it has become my second family, uh, you know, for and it's uh, it's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, being yeah, you, you matriculate together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Give us another thing you miss, Rod. Uh, I actually do miss being a public defender. I miss being a part of the cause. Um, mm. I think that what we do is uh, one of the noblest uh, things that anybody can do in our society. And I was proud to call myself a public defender. And when people would ask me what I did at parties or whenever, um, I would never say, you know, hey, I'm a lawyer. I would never say I'm a government attorney. I would always say I am a public defender. Uh, I was very, very proud of that, and uh, I do kind of miss being a part of that cause and being a part of that calling. You know, kind of walking away from that is uh, something that still kind of lingers with me a little bit. Um, I, I, would, I don't regret the decision, but it's uh, it, it's always going to be a part of me. There's a there's just a little little piece of me that's missing right now because I'm no longer one of you. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, I can I can relate because it we so much of my identity is tied up with being a public defender, being a part of this movement, mm -hmm. uh, trying to not only honor our clients, but then also try to change the values of our uh, mm -hmm. in our community, uh, trying to restore humanity or trying to push back against mass incarceration, push back against overzealous government yes. to be one of the people on the front line. I can totally relate. Trying cases, especially trying criminal cases, especially trying criminal cases as a public defender is the hardest thing there is to do in law. Let nobody tell you anything else. It is the most difficult area to practice. And uh, even in civil uh, trials, by the time a case ever gets to court, there are no surprises. The whole thing is scripted out. Everybody knows exactly what anybody else is going to say. Uh, in criminal trials, especially with the stakes that we have, uh, it is just it's so difficult and I would stress so much prior to every single trial I did I mean the the job itself and we'll probably talk about this a little uh, later on but the job itself always carries a level of stress with you there's a there's a, this, this knot inside that really never gets untied but uh, prior to every trial um, it would almost get intolerable and I wouldn't sleep I wouldn't be able to eat um, you know, arguing motions in limine and in jury selection, uh, it was, I, I was just at my wit's end. But once the trial started, um, and once the questions started to, to, to get asked, and once I was in the middle of it, it was great. Yes, yeah, there's nothing like <laughs> there that feeling, right? There's nothing like it, no. Yeah, uh, mm. you know, I was writing down notes because I was trying to think of what I would miss, and you caught it. I mean, the action, the adrenaline yeah. rush, those not, those butterflies, the... The anxieties, the stress, the elation, the ups and downs of trial, there's nothing like it. The fact that you have a human being right. sitting next to you whose life and liberty is on the line. You know, the fact that there's so many other human beings, uh, the interplay of their uh, responses and their behaviors, the judge, the DA, the jury, the bailiff, you, you know, everything. Right. It's live. It's real. It's right. dynamic. Right. Um, there is nothing like it. And I I know I miss even when I'm on uh non-trial assignment i miss that rush the feeling of being in that courtroom picking a jury cross-examining witnesses I, I figured you would say that because right. you're a trial warrior so <laughs> and there's nothing that can replicate it right my career went in a very predictable cycle i was on a trial assignment until it was timed for me to come off it and then i was asking to get back on a trial assignment i mean those are the only two stages that i really had yeah. as a public defender one take that you had in our office was that attorneys in argument aren't PowerPoint explainers. Right. We don't just present the PowerPoint and then explain each slide. And you try to teach a lot of the attorneys to remember that there are people right. who are jurors who we're trying to convince of our position. Because there's a tendency if you put PowerPoint into a trial to just 
read De- it. Just right. read it. Right. And in this slide, right. I talk about reasonable doubt. And in this slide, <laughs> I say, find him not guilty. Right. <laughs> yeah, I used to be a, uh, a practical Luddite when it came to PowerPoint. I hated it for the reasons that you've explained. I mean, I always thought it was an, ar- an artifice. I thought it got in the way of our... Um, of our standing as, as, as advocates and our ability to convey passion and our own conviction to the jury. But um, let's face it, you know, John Henry is no longer with us. The steam yeah. engine it rules the day. It's a part of what we do now. And jurors expect it, I and think. And jurors expect yeah, or it. Or expect some sort of multimedia right. component of your But also your the way the law is practiced is different now. I mean, when I started off, it was an analog world. Um, evidence came in, in, video, in, in video cassettes and audio cassettes and Polaroid pictures. And that's not the way discovery and evidence is provided now. It, it's all very digital. So PowerPoint is useful in that respect yeah. because you can drop exhibits into a presentation and instantly display them for the for the jury as you go and make your arguments so yeah there is a way to use it but you have to use it and not let it use you so what don't you miss i don't miss having to wear a suit (laughs) (laughs) i don't miss that too much i don't miss getting up at four in the morning to go to the gym i can actually uh, work out after i wake up right uh, instead of before what I don't miss is, uh, I think, the tax that our calling um, takes from all of us. Mm. As I you know, mentioned earlier, there's just always this low-level tension, I think, that we always carry with us, even when we're not in trial. There's just this knot that kind of builds inside of you, and it just keeps growing um, for as long as you uh, practice what we do. And that just comes from why we do what we do. Um, everything that we uh, deal with is um, because somebody is in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of human misery attached to our profession and not just the clients, it's their families, it's their future, and it's the realization that everybody that we represent, no matter how bad their situation right now is, no matter what they are accused of doing at the moment, they were once children. They had families, they had hopes, they had dreams. You know, nobody came into this world thinking that they were going to end up in a jail cell looking at the rest of their life in prison. The fact that there's almost never any good news that we can convey to either them or their families just really weighs on you. And there's also the fact that, let's face it, what we do uh, involves arguing all the time. We're always fighting. You know, we're always just, you know, just dealing with very unpleasant people. Every communication you have with your counterpart involves some kind of acrimony. Uh, every position that you take in court, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to persuade somebody to take a position that he or she may not want to take. Um, and that kind of drains on you. Every time I started a trial, there was always a thought that I had in my head that, man, I should have been an astronomer, maybe. They don't have to deal with this. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I saw I saw a quote or I mean, I'm paraphrasing it. You know, they were comparing being a public defender to being a doctor. And they said mm-hmm. the, the big difference is that, you know, a doctor who's doing a surgery, for example, doesn't have somebody else on the other side trying to undo the surgery. Right. You know, like the, yeah. <laughs> and here you we can't are. can't make that incision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're just like, undo, you know, trying to yeah. do the exact opposite of what we're trying yeah. to do to save our, our clients' lives there. Yeah. You know, there's some, there's a DA on the opposite side who's, who's actually got more power, who's got a bigger scalpel, who's got the more tools. Right. And that's, I was thinking about that in terms of what, you know, you, you mentioned uh, what you don't miss and, and the grind and the tax that it takes. It's, it, I was thinking about how powerless we um, often are in our jobs. We have a lot of power, obviously, to honor our clients right. and to, 
get into court and cross-examine witnesses, mm-hmm. but there are so many variables that are outside of our control, significant mm-hmm. variables, the law, right. the sentencing s- schemes, the evidence, um, right. who we, we don't get to pick our clients, obviously. No. And so there is a certain powerlessness that I think belies that, that heavy tax because we often can't control the ultimate outcome right. for our clients, no matter how much we try and how much work we put in or how much of our souls we put into it. get the party started that by, was just the appetizer yeah by moving on to our frequently asked questions discussion i uh, just quick editorial note i'm not calling it a deep dive anymore because that guy who was nominated for a judicial position was asked what a motion in limine is and he said we could do a deep dive <laughs> on oh, motions in limine the guy who didn't who never then, tried to yeah he was through didn't know about motions and the in moment limine. he said we're gonna do a deep dive on motions in limine i got sick <laughs> sick to my stomach so so this is an unnamed segment unnamed, so maybe the Ader nation can give us a new segment come at us on facebook twitter Instagram. We're on Instagram now. Aider and a better. Aider and a better. <laughs> IGS tweeted us if you have some segment title names and we'll call it call it something other than unnamed segment. But it's not a deep dive anymore. That guy ruined it for everybody. You know he did because when he I was watching that testimony and when he brought that up, that was the first thing I thought of, like, oh how are Sajanabi gonna yeah, react to this? I was I was shook. <laughs> um, all right. So um we wanted to talk, we put out a question a little while ago on Twitter. And we got some questions back about frequently asked public defender questions. Sajid and I got to experience a little bit of this when we went and spoke to the eighth graders. Yeah, that but, at Jordan Middle School. But it's a constant uh, for people who do public defense. And we hope that uh, our public defenders who are listening can uh, enjoy this. We're going to trigger you and give you a bunch of questions that people get uh, and kind of throw them to Rod, Sajid too, and me and see what goes on. I mean, the first uh, one that stood out is how do you how do you represent those people? <laughs> well, there's that. How do you represent those people? And then how do you represent, or is this a related question, is how do you represent the people when you know they're guilty? Yeah, let's let's start with just those people without reference to whether they've actually oh, okay. done anything. Yeah. Is that a fair question yeah, that's that a, is, that's is a, offered? Yeah, to, it's always asked. because, And then it's, it's implied that those people mean the bad people, the criminals, the minorities, the the, pe- the murderers, the rapists, the child molesters. I th- that's what I assume that they're referring to. Right. They, you don't think they're talking about uh, people who drive on a suspended license? They or? might be. There's some people that are pretty fired up about that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so, Rod, have you been asked that question before? So, I... I would get asked a variant of that question um, often, which is, so there are basically two, as you pointed out, there's kind of two versions of that question. There's a really hostile version, and then there's there's the more maybe well-meaning but earnest yeah. version of that question. And so the more hostile version I would get um, often at parties when I was introduced would be like, how do you sleep at night representing guilty people? And uh, depending on how many cocktails I'd had, I'd had a couple of versions of my own stock answer. Let's um, do no cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll work our way up. The cerebral we'll answer. A, we'll take a couple right. drinks. So I, um, well, yeah, <laughs> right. So no cocktails, I would say, well, you know, 
I sleep just fine representing guilty people. It's the innocent ones that keep me up at night. You know, those are the ones that cause me all those sleepless nights. Because mm-hmm. uh, representing guilty people is what we are supposed to do, and it's what the Constitution envisions when it put our job description in it. Uh, so it's uh, it's not about you know guilt or innocence. It's about upholding our values and about upholding the principle that anybody who is accused of a crime is entitled to a defense to test the prosecution's uh, burden. Because when the coercive arm of the state is enacted against any one of us, uh, it is incumbent upon everybody to ensure that fairness uh, prevail and that nobody is deprived of their liberty or their life uh, without the protection of somebody standing up for them. Not to mention the fact that everybody that I represent is in fact a person. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I don't you know, represent units, I represent people. Um, the prosecution calls every one of our clients defendants. We don't do that. We refer to them by name for a reason, because they are human beings and they are entitled to uh, the humanity that, imp- that goes along with that. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned in the first segment about some of your favorite memories being meeting the clients, right. uh, going to the jail and meeting the mm-hmm. clients. And then the second thing you mentioned was the fact that all of our clients were babies once. They were all children once. They're not... They weren't born predisposed to commit the crimes that they ultimately right. commit and that landed them in, in prison. And so uh, when people ask that question of how do you represent those people, uh, my response is they're, they're our fellow human beings. Uh, they've had a different path. They've had a, they've had a different story than, than the average person, than you or I, but they are still with us in humanity. And that's actually my favorite part of the job is going to the jail and mm-hmm. having those real intimate conversations, being able to not judge our clients uh, for the worst thing that they've ever done and actually get to know them, get to know their stories, get to know their trajectories, what took them from innocent child to where they are in front of us. And there is such uh, dignity and integrity in that in that job. There, it's not something that I feel any embarrassment about. It's actually something I feel really proud about. Um, and it's my favorite part of the job is to have those conversations, to sit with the people that most people are not comfortable mm-hmm. sitting next to and breathing life back into them, breathing humanity back into them. There's right. nothing like it. I want to know what, what's your response after oh, yeah. the many drinks? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I okay, might, let's do it. I, Rod, I might, I might. How do you, oh, you, Rod O'Connor? Yeah. That's Rod? Yes. Uh, oh, yes. public defender? That's right. How do you represent those people? <laughs> Let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, the last I checked, there were, what, some 200 DNA exonerations of people yeah. wrongfully convicted, some sent to death row. Have you ever met a prosecutor and asked them, how can you prosecute all those innocent people? Mm. Have oh, you I watched like yourself? Has somebody videotaped you? That's a near perfect reenactment. <laughs> Not yet. At least it hasn't you popped up a, on you YouTube. You flip the script. When, so you, yeah. you're principled when, and then you go into more aggressive script flipping. <laughs> yeah. That's the trend. I mean, but seriously, has yeah. any prosecutor ever been asked uh, at a cocktail party, how can you prosecute all those innocent people? You know, there are people in jail right now because of prosecutorial misconduct or because some cop lied and are you okay with that they never get those kinds of questions i don't hang out with da's i don't know (laughs) it'd be interesting if we were totally wrong about that that's just something they're asked all the time i don't think (laughs) i doubt it i doubt it what if you have a, a guilty client have you have you received that question yes and my usual response is yeah every client who is accused is presumed to be innocent whether or not i know he's guilty is almost irrelevant and in fact often it's not whether or not they did what they are accused of doing but it's why they did what they are accused of doing 
the what is almost never as important as the why. And, and this, this really came up in the last trial that I did, which I hope we can talk about a little bit later. Um, talk but, about it now. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's never about, it's never black and white. It's almost right. you know, with what we do is almost never you know innocent or guilty. It's it's degrees of culpability. Was it a homicide case? Yes. And so the question was, there was a killing, and two killings, two killings, and right. what was going on in the mind of right. the the accused? Right. The very first uh, word of my closing argument was why. It was never uh, there was never any question you know that what had happened had happened, but the whole question was why did it happen. And that often can mean, mean, make a whole lot of difference in uh, not just what happens to your client, but how he, is, he or she is seen um, in the eyes of the jury and in the eyes of the law. All of our clients are never just like innocent or guilty. Most of them are, you know, overcharged, I would say. Yeah. One of the things, the mantras that I've taken on, Charlie Hendrickson, one of our colleagues, talked about context, not just conduct. Right. And that holds true in two ways. One is in terms of assessing actual legal culpability, you know, what or what degree of a crime is someone responsible for? Is it first degree murder, second degree murder, or manslaughter, or something else when it comes to homicides? Right. And then also in terms of punishment, it's understanding the context of what prompted this person to to commit this particular uh, behavior or crime, uh, what um, what led up to it, and then what's the, what's our communal response to it. Right. Um, it's not just as, it, the inquiry of whether or not they committed the act is just one piece of the puzzle. There are so many other questions that need right. to be answered, and that's what we're there for, is to help offer those answers and offer those responses in a courtroom or in a, in a community where we're the only one offering right. kind of a dissenting voice right. um, where, like you said, where everything else is stacked up against our clients and we're the advocate right. saying, no, let's slow down for a second. Um, maybe maybe life in prison for this particular mm-hmm. person isn't the right response. Maybe maybe there's something else that is right. both most beneficial to them, to the victims, to the communities. And so my my recent kind of iteration of our my response to that question is whether they're guilty or not is not my question to answer. And it's irrelevant to my practice. But the, even if I know someone is guilty, the question is, can the prosecution prove it beyond a reasonable doubt with credible legal evidence to that point? Was the evidence collected lawfully within mm-hmm. the parameters of our Constitution, specifically the Fourth and Fifth Amendments? More than that is, again, what is our response to the crime? What's the appropriate punishment that should be attached, especially in this day and age where mass incarceration has just has become the, an epidemic? Whether our clients are guilty or not, we are we're at the we're the vanguards of trying to push back against this mass incarceration epi- epidemic, and so it's it's easy to do the job in the sense of uh, sleeping at night because we yeah. even representing quote unquote guilty people because we are responsible for all these other questions that need to be answered on well, a particular case. Well, if you think about it, society has recognized that. I mean, there's a reason the penal code is as thick as it is. Uh, yeah. There are stat- there are multiple statutes that can apply to the same act depending on how you view the act. Right. Yes, it's the difference. It could be the difference between first degree murder, second degree, degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, it could be the difference between robbery or grand theft person. Uh, just you know, to, to pick a couple of examples. Examples. There are degrees of culpability that society has recognized that can be attached to almost any every act that it disapproves of, and uh, it is often our job to point out those degrees of difficulties and to advance the argument in the client's case that uh, what really transpired here is the lesser of those right. and and why yeah, yeah and, and why they are deserving of, of mercy and of mitigation. There was an advertisement against, uh, I think it was Kamala Harris when she was running for, I think it was Attorney General. Mm-hmm. And the ad said, 
you know, 50% of guilty clients are acquitted, you know, in her, you know, courtroom, <laughs> which is like, uh, Wait. it's an absurd <laughs> statement, right? They're you're by not, definition. You're not guilty until guilty. you've been proven guilty. Yeah. So, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, there's kind of that question, like, how do you represent guilty people? Well, there's, you know, this whole process. Whether they're guilty or those people, the, the biggest answer is that no matter what, in any time anyone is accused of a crime, whether it's a misdemeanor, petty theft, all the way to a homicide, Every person deserves to have at least one other human being in their corner who is only loyal to them That's right. um, and who is there for them and who is going to advocate for them, to tell them their rights, to sit with them, get to know them, to tell their story. You get a constitutional guarantee to it. You're one person. Right. That's right. It's, it's, and it's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful honor. Like I think you referenced yeah. it earlier, Rod, there is something so honorable about that is that we're that person. Um, we're that person when I just did a you know, homicide trial a couple months ago and literally the entire courtroom in terms of the audience was sitting on the prosecution side. Mm. I was the one that was right. sitting next to my client and I continue to be that one through the trial, ultimately through his sentencing. And I was so honored and privileged and proud to do it because we were breathing life back into him, but also just ensuring that this person knows what their rights are, knows what's happening, is being advocated for, because oftentimes there's no one else to do it. Right. And every person is do that. So when we right. couch it that way, anyone at a, at a yeah. party is going to be like, oh, okay, I get that. Because right. they know someone in their lives that has been arrested for a DUI or for, for something more serious, perhaps. And they know that uh, in those moments of crises, every person needs someone in their corner. And it, we're uniquely able to understand our client situation based on our obligations to our client right. and we become experts in how to structure outcomes for them separate from trial right. that or you know whether they're convicted after a trial or they enter some plea right. to actually advocate for this is what's going to address the underlying concern right. with this individual right. like we have understood that they had this foster care trauma and they need to put in some work in the following five ways right and nobody right. else has that insight into them because of our special relationship with the client. You know, we have the most trust with our clients to understand where they're coming from and what actually needs to be put into place to help them separate, you know, separate from, you know, was the case proven just right. in the settlement world. And circling back to what you just said, too, you touched on it. It is a constitutional guarantee. As I pointed out to the to the people I addressed at my retirement party, um, I said, you people are load bearing pillars of the Bill of Rights. Every mm. one of us is. You don't have a constitutional right to a doctor, although perhaps you should, right? You don't have a constitutional right to a police officer or an ambulance driver or a firefighter you know, or a utility uh, operator you know, or a telephone repair person. But you do have a constitutional right to an attorney if you are accused of a crime. Other than the executive, the legislative, and the, the judiciary, the only occupation that is guaranteed in the Constitution is us. So there's a reason for that. And I, I think that that lets us pivot based on the conversation we've had just to briefly touch on this McCoy versus Louisiana case. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to do too much context. The background is a uh, man is accused of a triple homicide. He's facing a death sentence, so he's going through a capital trial. He fired his public defender and was going to represent himself. Then some kind of acquaintance of the family learned about the situation and came on as counsel because he was fearful of a person being prosecuted facing death as a, an individual representing himself. And then they get in this huge conflict. And the conflict is the attorney believes that by conceding guilt in opening, not putting on witnesses to an alibi, 
calling his client as a witness and questioning him to kind of prove how out of touch with reality he, he was. Cross-examined his client. Yeah. He cross-examined them and then conceding guilt in closing. He conceded it an opening, too. Uh, yeah, opening. Right. I know they'll be able to prove their case. They will be able to prove their case. All against his client's wishes. For the purpose. There was uh, a reason. The purpose was, uh, the stated purpose was that he felt that by doing so, because the evidence was so strong against his client, he would essentially garner garner the trust of the jury by essentially conceding what was clear as day from his perspective of the client's guilt and then focusing on the penalty phase where the jury would then be tasked with deciding whether to give this person the death penalty or not. And so essentially conceding what he felt was clear and then focusing on the penalty phase. We all agree he's guilty. I'm telling you he's guilty. Now in clo- I've told you he was guilty earlier. Now we're all here. Please. Uh, now I'm telling you to save his life, to not kill him. Except they hit a client in the courtroom <laughs> saying, I'm innocent. <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. This is a violation of my due process rights. Right. He's saying something that's not true. Right. And then antagonizing his client, you know, getting into this antagonistic relationship with the client in the examination. Yeah. I didn't realize initially when I read the, uh, the story, I didn't realize how to what extent this attorney had conceded the client's guilt, uh, you know, how um, plain he was about it, both from uh, in terms of pretrial motions and then an opening statement. And then, like you said, cross-examining his own client, kind of pointing out deficiencies in his client's testimony. How the story didn't add up. Right. And then closing, you know, initially I, I was feeling sympathetic to the defense attorney just from a headline perspective, mm-hmm. thinking, oh, okay, you know, these are strategic calls that a defense attorney has to make only to then realized he probably could have done things a lot differently to f- serve the same purpose, but not to antagonize or belittle uh, his client's wishes. When I first read the story, I was flabbergasted um, and appalled, and I, I couldn't believe that this was real. Like, First off, how did the trial judge allow this to continue the way that it was, yeah. with the client openly saying, what are you saying? You're, you're right. saying I'm guilty. In the courtroom. In the courtroom, in open court. Um, how was that even allowed to continue? Um, and then the actions of the attorney himself, it, it was appalling beyond belief. This was, you know, this struck me as more of a caricature of a defense attorney that we'd often see on DA porn shows like Law and Order, <laughs> you know, where somebody would just use his client in the service of some greater cause, no matter what the client wanted. Um, right. uh, you, you can certainly feel uh, the way that he does about the death penalty. I'm sure we all share those sentiments. Um, it's barbaric on its face, and the way it's applied is, is, is even worse. But you cannot uh, throw your client client basically on the altar of your crusade Hmm. um, by expressly conceding his guilt in the face of his wishes. Uh, That's not our job. That's not our role. And and that's not, uh, that certainly wasn't his role. But even more appalling was that the state's highest court basically um, signed off on it. And it's hardly surprising. This was the same Louisiana Supreme Court that found that a client had not affirmatively requested a lawyer because he had requested a lawyer dog. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Give me a lawyer dog. It's not unequivocal. Right. right. Uh, Use the word dog like as in like the axiom of like referring to his buddy as right. dog. Right. Yeah. So yeah. he said, give me a lawyer dog. Could be interpreted as lawyer or uh, a canine like a, dog. Like a, a canine a, lawyer. A, 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 an attorney dog. Right. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is farcical, you know, it is. It absurdist. Is. You know, and in fairness, this was a concurring opinion written by one justice, uh, Justice Crichton. But nonetheless, it became pretty much the signature line of this hideously result-oriented opinion. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can see that we're Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, the trial. We weren't in the middle of this death penalty fight. I think, though, by looking in hindsight, there's 
two big issues. The first is there's decisions that belong to a client. The decision to go to trial, yeah. the decision to testify, the decision to remain silent. Take a deal or not take yeah, a deal. Yeah, to, to enter a plea. And then there's the tactical and strategic decisions that the attorney is in charge of. And this is definitely a kind of grayer one by conceding guilt. That's a strategic decision in order to get some better outcome in the trial. However, the whole point of going to trial was to contest guilt. Yeah. And so it is kind of, so that's kind of point one. Point two is I have to believe that there was some other way out of this trap that the attorney felt that he was in a situation where he could either concede guilt and tell him my client's guilty and have them maybe give, you know, go from a 5% chance of a life sentence to a 7% chance of a life sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all risk, risk decisions. Or he, so he either had to throw his client under the bus or just take the 5% chance of the death sentence, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, there has to be another way where you get the jury to reckon, you know, build credibility with the jury or whatever, uh, and have the best pitch for a life sentence without right. getting into a dispute with your client in front of the jury. Yeah, right. I think, I mean, uh, from a basic perspective, I mean, what the trial is all about is that just asking the jury to hold the prosecution to their burden of proof. I mean, if you, you know, you don't have to go over the top in, in asking the jury to do that. You can do that in a way that is not conceding guilt, but it's at the same time, not losing credibility with the jury where you're arguing things that are that are remote or kind of moot or that would be insulting to them. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that whole isn't that the rationale behind having Keenan counsel at a uh, in a death penalty case? You have one attorney that tries the guilt phase, and then if the client is found guilty, you have mm-hmm. the second attorney who has not heretofore been robbed of any credibility by arguing right. issues of guilt. N- now they get to make the pitch yeah. for the sentence. Right. Um, that obviously wasn't the case in, in this situation. Yeah. But uh, even uh, assuming that there wasn't Keenan available in this situation, I don't know what the rules are in Louisiana. But there are ways where you can say, look, you know, it's uh, the, the play is for, for mercy at sentencing phase, not contesting guilt. But as you point out, there are ways that you can still test the prosecution's case, um, emphasize some weaknesses, maybe draw out some inferences that would highlight whether or not you felt that this client is delusional without expressly going against your client's witness and acting as a second prosecutor. Yeah. I think that is a bridge way too far. And having some discussion about what your role is, right, and having some comfort in your own skin, right? Yeah. As a defense attorney, mm, yeah. you know, this conversation we just had a few moments ago about <laughs> what we're there for. If you, if you believe that in your bones, then it's going to be okay. You're yeah. going to be able to question assumptions and test things and, and right. make sure nothing's easy. Right. And then at the same time, you know, understand your client's context and be ready to put on a full scale right. mitigation. And right. you can couch it with the jury too. Yeah. You can couch it in jury selection, telling them, telling the jury that there are going to be two phases of this process that uh, as a defense attorney, mm-hmm. I'm going to be cross-examining witnesses. I'm going to be, you know, are you comfortable with the prosecution right. being held to their burden of proof, the presumption of innocence? Um, that way they know, you know, that's what your role is in this portion of the trial. You're not trying to put one over their heads or anything like that. There's no gamesmanship going on. You're just honoring your client. You're honoring the Constitution. You're doing your job. And then if they hold the prosecution to their burden, even if you believe your client's guilty, they'll they'll get there. Right. And then you can um, move on to the next phase in a credible, honest, earnest way. I mean, I think we've all had this conversation too, but every time I meet a client for the first time, I always have basically the same, you know, kind of... Preview. I say, you know, I'm going to be your attorney. 
um, as long as I'm your attorney, I'm going to have control over just about everything that has to do with your case. I'm going to decide what motions to file, what witnesses to call, what arguments to make, and so forth. You have three decisions that you need to make on your own. Mm. And I will counsel you and I'll guide you in those decisions, but ultimately they're your decisions. And the first one is whether or not you're going to plead guilty uh, or not. The second one is whether or not you're going to uh, assert your right to a speedy trial or not. And the third one is whether or not you're going to testify in your own defense. Mm. Um, giving them that agency um, yeah. kind of, yeah, I think, is the first step in establishing the bond between you and your client. Um, and uh, without that bond, you really cannot be an effective advocate. All right, let's uh, wrap up and move on to our things. Sajid, do you have a thing this week? I do. I actually opened up my Instagram this morning and I saw that Colin Kaepernick is in the last stage of his million dollar pledge. It's his last $100,000 of donations that he's making and he's making 10 $10,000 donations in the next 10 days. And so the first of those $10,000 donations was today and it was given to Silicon Valley Debug, uh, Debug? which he Debug. also gave a donation to at the beginning of his million dollar pledge. And then that $10,000 he gave today is being matched by Kevin Durant, which is pretty awesome. And I, there was this exchange on Twitter between KD and Colin Kaepernick, essentially shouting each other out and supporting each other in this uh, in this cause. And then Debug is going to use that money to uh, help with bail reform, to continue the work they do on juvenile justice, doing social biography videos for our clients. And so uh, shout out to Colin Kaepernick, Kevin Durant, and uh, everybody at Debug. I love moments like that. It's like the perfect confluence of all these things that I love. The Warriors, Kaepernick is one of my favorite players, and then Debug is like my third family. I, lo- I love that. Uh, and if you want to hear more about Debug, you can listen to one of our episodes about episode Who's 10. Courts. Yeah, episode 10 with Raj and Sharice from Debug. So my thing this week are just uh, two quick movie recommendations. I'm not going to say too much about the movies, but one film came out. It wasn't really, it's on, it's available now, like on your home television. It's called Marshall. And it's all about Thurgood Marshall as a criminal defense attorney with the NAACP. It reminds me of a book called Devil in the Grove, which is all about when Marshall used to go down to southern states and combat uh, racism in criminal trials by trying cases to juries and exposing uh, police misconduct and other injustices in the court. And uh, another film that came out is called Molly's Game. And it's a movie about poker, but it has a criminal law angle and Idris Alba plays a criminal defense attorney hmm. and the attorney from the wire uh, who cross-examines Omar also has a very small but nice role uh, as a criminal defense attorney and without spoiling anything he says something if you don't commit crime while you're committing crime and <laughs> I just thought that was great so um, those are two movie recommendations is my things. So I got a, a couple of quick ones that I'll, I'll give you a hit. Uh, as you know, I went back to D.C. this last September to visit my dad, and it was right after uh, Trump had made his infamous remark about the NFL protesters. And so I thought I was going to go ahead and throw my Colin Kaepernick jersey in my in my, uh, in my my suitcase for my visit. And uh, it was what I was going to wear when I um, on the day that I set aside for my sightseeing. Um, and quite a day it was. Um, I 
posted a picture of myself on Twitter standing outside the White House with my Kaepernick jersey and nice. got a bunch of likes. Um, but the whole day that I wore it all over D.C., um, it was uh, just amazing theater. I was getting such positive reaction from every African-American that I encountered on the street. Uh, on the roads. I was getting high fives from the security guards at the Smithsonian. Uh, I got hooked up with gallery passes at the Capitol from some guy that, at the desk. And the only negative reaction I got was from some 20 uh, something white Capitol Hill cop uh, up, upstairs at the metal detector for the, uh, for the Senate gallery. He didn't say a word, but just kind of looked at me and just shook his head in a very negative fashion. The whole thing played out exactly as I thought. It was, a, it was kind of like a, a political test to see how uh, the reactions would go and I was very gratified at the ones that they got. Um, but the other one I wanted to give out is just a shout out to um, who I want, always want to hold out as our uh, patron saint as public defenders, and that was John Adams. As you may have known, if you watch the HBO miniseries, he was uh, the one who was assigned the task of representing the Redcoats uh, in the infamous Boston Massacre. They took a little bit of license because it was actually two separate trials, but uh, this is a case for people who may not know that in 1770, in March 5th, uh, a group of uh, British soldiers was confronted by an angry mob of uh, protesters who were angry about British occupation. Things got a little heated, um, weapons were discharged, and uh, at, uh, at the end of the encounter, five uh, Boston citizens uh, lay dead. In the ensuing uh, rush to judgment, uh, it was quickly apparent that uh, there was going to have to be a trial, but nobody wanted to represent them. At the time, John John Adams was just a 35-year-old lawyer. You know, nobody had ever heard of him before. Nobody uh, else wanted to take up their case, but he was persuaded to, and he did it because he thought that the principles of law and justice should apply to everybody, no matter what they were accused of. And he took their case, and uh, he, um, he won acquittals for both the captain and for the soldiers in separate trials. And as a result, his reputation was uh, enhanced, and he established uh, pretty much that the rule of law does apply to everybody, no matter how heinous uh, the act. And a little bit of a tidbit there, this is also the first time that the words reasonable doubt were ever entered into the record. And that was the basis for the acquittal of the captain. Well, Rod, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Appreciate it. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll come at you all later. Bye. Talk soon. Bye.